Welcome to Back Talk. It's our every other weekly <laughs> uh, pop culture show where two feminist folks just gab along. <laughs> I'm Amy Lamb, the associate editor. And I'm Sarah Merck. I'm the online editor at Bitch. And so often we uh, begin the show to talk about like, you know, what we're doing as editors. But I think this week we should take some time out to shout out uh, a supporter who sent us a mystery box. Oh, this, was, <laughs> this made my life. Last week in our office, a giant box showed up addressed to me and Amy. And I was like, what is this giant box? And you know what? what? Could it be? I, I said, I said, is it heavy? You said no. And I said, it's chips. <laughs> yeah. So we opened it up and this whole box was full of of chips, of potato <laughs> chips that a listener had mailed to us as a thank you gift um, because on the, a couple episodes ago, Amy was talking jokingly about how she would sell out <laughs> Bitch Media to take money from Frito-Lay because she loves <laughs> chips so much. Because Bitch, as an independent feminist nonprofit, we don't take corporate sponsorship, except that... <laughs> Amy loves salty snacks. Love salty snacks. And so this really cool listener, she sent us like a giant box of chips and was like, look, you got your chips. You don't right. need to sell out. <laughs> so so we just want to say thank you to Corey from Farmingdale, New York. Thank you so much. And um, I did have like this moral quandary when I was eating those delicious salty chips. But I was like, you know, we don't take corporate money. But then I like I convinced a supporter to go shop with a corporation <laughs> and then like and then send us this. So she in turn gave Frito-Lay money. So maybe I have to rethink like the things that I ask people for that are salty. <laughs> but that was just like so beautiful. It made me want to cry. That, oh, like, yeah. Some... I, I did a shuffle in the office. I was like, chips, 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 chips. <laughs> so thank you so much to um, everybody who sends well wishes our way, whether they're salty chips or just kind words it really matters i feel like a lot of the work we do we publish it and it's just like out in the void and i'm like is anybody listening to this does anybody care so it's really cool to get um some concrete affirmation that people are listening and people do care and those people have delicious snacks <laughs> thank you so much Corey. uh okay so also we talk about our favorite pop culture thingy of the week uh my thing isn't like so much of a favorite it's kind of like an unfavorite and it's also nothing new but I can't get it out of my brain mm. um so you know on Sundays I'm glued to HBO uh because it's my sun HBO Sundays where I'm watching Veep, Silicon Valley and Game of Thrones and also um last week tonight with John Oliver but with those first three shows it's like I know that those shows are very white like I've always known that they're very white but I still watch them and I still enjoy them despite them being very white um but the, now this thing is happening where because these shows have been on for long enough that they're introducing new characters. And every time they introduce a new character, I just think like, why can't that character be a person of color? Or why can't that character be queer? Or why can't that character be disabled? It's like, there's no reason that they can't be because these are all fictional worlds. Like super duper, very fictional, made up worlds that, you know, people conjure it up and type down to paper. And then like these actors get paid to read these lines. So it, it's like, I'm watching it, but every time like somebody new comes on screen, I'm just like, oh, how come you're not somebody from a marginalized community that needs representation? Mm. Um, I mean, like, for example, on Veep, there's this character named Richard Splett. He's a black guy and he's so good. And I think he was only introduced like two or three seasons ago. I want more Richard Splets. He's so amazing. I don't I don't know the actor's name, but his character is perfect. And I'm just like, if like Veep is already like 
like awfully funny like it's awful and it's funny and it's terrible in this funny way but like i would love it if it just showed like a wider representation well, of like what we all look like that's one thing that's so refreshing about shonda rhimes's shows um scandal how to go away with murder Grey's anatomy is that just like random characters are people of color on this show like people that they talk to like extras small bit parts main characters and watching those shows has made me really reflect on like oh in so much other tv whenever you have extras or even just like small bit parts it's still all white it all looks the same and it's like there's no reason why like that guy working at the grocery store has to be white or like why this crowd scene has to be all white or why you know this doctor has to be white it's like you can really see the difference on Shonda Rhimes's shows when it's open to casting a more diverse cast that people of color show up all over those shows like just like in the real world um so it, it's really a like, stark difference right so there. hbo needs to give shonda rhimes an amazing <laughs> contract because i would love to see shonda rhimes like go for it on hbo because like it's very uncensored oh my god oh, it'd be so good Okay, so let's see. My favorite piece of pop culture this week is I got this new comic book. You know, I love comic books. Um, and this one uh, is, I had never heard of this artist before, but her name is Gina Weinbrandt. I'm probably saying her name wrong. And the comic is called Someone Please Have Sex With Me. And <laughs> it's, it's like a Technicolor, uh, really cool little comic published by um, 2D Cloud. And it's about this like character named Gina who's loosely based on the author sort of maybe um or some sort of like magical interpretation of the author and she's like this horny frustrated girl who like loves justin bieber and like just wants to get it on and it's such a funny little comic book and it just dropped into my life and it's so cool to i think to stumble across something that i had no idea who this artist was um and then i was sitting at a bar yesterday reading the book someone please have sex with me <laughs> it just says that across the cover and i was like is this weird that I'm like sitting at this bar <laughs> reading this book called Someone Please Have Sex With Me? Um, but so I would go check out that comic if you like uh, surreal, weird sexual stories, which I do. Uh, go check it out. That character sounds like it could be me, but replace Justin Bieber with Zane. <laughs> and... <laughs> All right, well, we have a special edition of the show today. Instead of doing our regular two big news pieces from the week, we're going to talk with the hosts of one of my favorite podcasts, Good Muslim, Bad Muslim, Zara and Taz. Um, they're going to join us, so stay tuned. We're so excited to have some special guests on the show with us today. It's Taz and Zara of the excellent podcast, Good Muslim, Bad Muslim. Hello. Welcome to the show. Hi. <laughs> Thanks for having us. Hello. And can you two introduce yourself so people listening know who's who? Yeah, this is Taz. I'm in LA. This is Zara. I'm calling from San Francisco. Well, I love your guys' podcast, and uh, it just got a boost recently with being the first podcast to record at the White House. Can you tell us about that experience a little bit? Tess, you want to talk about how we got there because of your awesome Illuminati connections? There's no Illuminati connections. Um, yeah, we were at the White House last month for Asian American and Pacific Islander Heritage Month. There is an event to honor um, folks from the community. So I got an award. Uh, well, I was one of 10 people that got an award, a Champion of Change Award in Art and Storytelling. So we were in D.C. for that. And um, we tried really hard and begged to see if we could get into the White House to record our podcast. And they let us do it. So we were very excited. That's our last podcast. 
That's so exciting, and we are extending our our sincerest clap clapping hands emojis to you all. <laughs> <laughs> I just like that now you can say that you're officially a champion of storytelling. Not that many people can say I, that. I know, I know. I'm I'm hoping to use it. I'm trying to go to milk it for all it's worth. I'm not quite sure how or where, but I'm gonna try. <laughs> Maybe like next time you order a pizza and you need you want an like extra olives, you can be like, well, actually, I'm a champion storyteller. So just FYI, if you guys want to like, if you want to hook it up, <laughs> that's my plan. I was thinking of putting it on my Tinder profile, but I wasn't sure if that was going to be a plus or a negative. <laughs> yeah, I think pe- I think people might be kind of intimidated. I think people might be kind of intimidated by that. Right, right, right. Like people already say I'm too intimidating when it comes to dating. This might be like too much. I don't know. Maybe. You know, I have on my Tinder profile. I say right up. I'm like, I am moderately intimidating. Like, <laughs> just FYI. <laughs> Because people always, uh, guys always Cut tell me that chief. I'm intimidating, and I'm like, yeah, that's your problem. Maybe, <laughs> maybe that's why I'm intimidating. <laughs> um, well, actually, that ties into the what we wanted to talk about with you two today. We had you on the show to talk about the concept of likability and the way that gender and race play into being likable. Mm. Mm. Um, so, of course, the concept of likability comes up in pop culture all the time. Um, totally. But, and right now, the big likability thing a lot of people have been thinking about is Hillary Clinton, who, as of today, will probably secure the Democratic nomination for president. And a lot of the pushback and criticism of her is just that she's not likable enough. And there was this this column in uh, The New York Times on Sunday where uh, Maureen Dowd interviewed Sally Fields. You know, S- Sally Field is the is the actor who, in 1985, when she won the Oscar, gave that speech that was like, you like me, you really like me, you know? And uh, she was saying that with Hillary Clinton, um, that unpopularity shouldn't be disqualifying, especially for a woman. She said, we don't need someone who is nice. And come on, honestly, women have spent the last hundred years trying to get out from under the expectation that they had to be sugar and spice and everything nice. We don't need sugar and spice and everything nice. Yeah, maybe let's start at how people compare Hillary Clinton to Donald Trump. I think that's insane. Because for one thing, Hillary Clinton, uh, for whatever, you know, crimes she may have committed or people have accused her of, she's not openly advocating the KKK. She's not kicking people out of the country out loud. Like, at least she has that much decency in her to know that those things are not appropriate and that they are the actions of a corrupt government. But Donald Trump can just get up there and be a white guy and be like, hey, I could kill people and still run for president and I would be fine. Which is something that he actually said when he was in New York. He said, I could kill somebody and get away with it. Wow. Yeah, I think that it's like, how do you two see this idea playing into Hillary Clinton's candidacy that like, uh, you know, if, if a woman's running for president, people not only have to like think her policies are good, but they have to think that she that they want to be friends with her too. That she's a nice that she's a nice person. The thing is, I don't want my president to be likable by evil mongers and dictators. You know, like I want someone who's going to be hard and strong, and be able to stand up for the rights of Americans. And that's you're not going to get that with likability politics. And I think the other thing is that. 
that men get away with not having to be likable, but women are held to the standard of trying to be likable. And it's not fair. It's a super double standard. And it's not really going to help our government if we just have like super likable, nice people everywhere. Yeah, well, this comes up in pop culture, too. I think about how characters, like male characters, are often written in a way that allows them to be flawed or bad people, and they're still the heroes of the protagonists of stories. You know, like from Conan the Barbarian to, like, every Arnold Schwarzenegger film to, I think, of Breaking Bad with Walter White. Totally. Yeah, and then his wife, Skylar, has gotten, you know, people hate Skylar when, because she, as a woman, is also flawed and complicated, but when a woman is flawed and complicated, it's like seen as far worse than with the men. Well, because she's in the way. Oh, get her out of the way. Let the man do what the man has planned and tell that woman to shut up, you know, is, is what I perceive it as being. I also noticed that in pop culture, there's this trope where the female heroine is at first raped and then is, uh, for the rest of the episodes working either in reaction to or up against um, or in the aftermath of that origin story as though like everything has been stripped away of her and so we can forgive her of her sins then. Uh, Yeah, what's an example where you see that show up? Uh, I saw that in two places I'll point out. One, which is actually one of my favorite shows of all time, um, The Americans, where the origin story of Elizabeth, the spy and badass lady, is that she was raped when she was 17 back in Russia, and uh, that's a part of her like cold-hearted nature, and uh, she is now a strong woman, and she fights back against her accuser, and then that sort of springboards the relationship between her and her partner-slash-employee, Philip. In another um, example... There's the story of Maleficent, which is like my favorite dislikable witch of all time. From Yeah, that one was really well done. From Sleeping Beauty. And in the cartoon, you know, she's just like wicked, wicked, wicked evil villain. And of course, in the end, she gets penetrated by the sword of truth and dies. In the remake, uh, I haven't seen it, but it sounds like Taz, you saw it. I know that a lot of people... Yeah, mentioned to me that there's this scene where her wings are removed and the scene is shot almost like a rape. Yeah, it's really well done, really beautifully done. And it makes you think twice about how we portray what is evil and what is actually evil and how there are multiple sides to every story. The thing that drives me nuts about that, though, is that why is it that there has to be this this kind of rape this kind of transgression that then has to make it such that then we see why they are an unlikable person. Why do we have to go back to that? Yeah. Right. Because often with like male characters, they get to be um, like in a bad mood or complicated and uh, have so many different layers of themselves without having to explain why they are the way they are. But when female or women characters behave in such a way, we need to have like these narratives behind like what contributed to them not being this like sweet nurturing person that like society has socialized women to be. Um, it's such a it's a really misogynistic double standard. And in the examples that you're talking about, it also ties into like um, these misogynistic feelings that we have about 
uh, w- like what women have that's that's valuable and and for these and for our cultures like a lot of it, it has to do with like their virginity and and their purity. If there's a male character who's like kind of like surly or badass or tough, we're just like, oh yeah, that's just the way that he is. But if a woman is that way, people are like, why is she so mean? It's gotta be because of some sort of violence in her past that she's working her whole life to overcome. It hardened her into being this person. So I'm I'm interested in your in your guys' life. Like, how does likability play into your social interactions? I mean, we're just talking about Tinder a little bit, but like when you're presenting yourself to, like I don't know, either to people you're dating or in the office or in work or in pitching your show to the White House, <laughs> how does how does like likability play into the way that you present yourselves? Gosh, I mean that's a really good question. I think there's this thing where as women, we have to play between this likability and then we have to be really hard and prove ourselves and climb up this ladder of ambition. I think one of the things that I really have to battle is that I'm a little bit quieter. Um, I don't really brag very often, but when I would go to these events, I would I'd be super infantilized and um, kind of pushed to the side when people didn't know who I was. And I find myself having to say, like, you know, I have 15-year career in doing electoral organizing or, you know, I've been published here and here. Like, I keep having to, like, state my achievements, even though I think it's really stupid to have to state my achievements to prove who I am. But I think that's part of that whole likability thing. It's like you you have to, like, prove yourself. You have to, you have to be likable. You have to, like, make yourself known and force yourself to be respected. And I think that's something that, especially as women of color, we have to battle constantly. Zara here. On the subject of likability, at my workplace, I had a 360 meeting uh, because the accusation was that I was too tall and too loud. Too tall? Yeah. The I, I became project manager at uh, this a school that I used to work at. It was like an after-school enrichment program. And I became the first project manager for their summer programming because they hadn't had one before. And so, of course, I was put in that awful position of all middle managers to, you know, be the person with no actual authority weighing in on how everybody is doing their job and trying to streamline it. And I didn't realize that not just nobody liked me, but nobody wanted to work with me anymore because they didn't like me. And we ended up having to have a 360 meeting. And of course I said, oh, sure, yeah, I'm open to that. I love communication. But it was just basically a bashing of me and everything that they'd been harboring in resentment about me. And their words were, you're too tall and too loud. And just because you're tall and loud doesn't mean that you get what you want. So how... What happened after that? When someone says you're too tall and you're too loud, like, what is even a productive response to that? Yeah, I Sorry, I got shortening, a uh, shortening surgery, I guess. <laughs> yeah, got your legs broken. Can sit down. Was... You could sit down more often. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, was, I mean, there was a lot of like, I I certainly went through the motions. I was really angry. I was really upset. I also was really missing the social justice activists that I work with, you know, in the comedy work that I do. 
uh, in this space because, you know, you don't have that in every space, that kind of awareness. At the same time, you know, I had a call to make, which was that I could either take the conversation the route that they were taking it, which was to make it about their attitudes toward me and these character assassinations, or I could do my job as a project manager, which is steer us back toward the project. And so I made a choice to kind of put my emotions about it aside and to ask them what it was that they found intimidating and make it clear that I also make mistakes too, that I'm not walking around as this divine figure passing out judgments that, you know, I am just trying to do the same kind of work and just like they get stressed, I get stressed. And they started to all kind of realize that they turned me into this villain and we slowly kind of came around to an understanding and it was clear that there was a lot of internalized sexism at play. I was working with women, you know, and this still came up and there was a lot of internalized sexism where I also started to take some communication coaching classes to see, you know, what happens physically that they're uh, being intimidated and what can I do to counter that, which I hated that it fell on me, but I feel like the reality is that we don't get to just write essays on how we should be treated in the workplace and then see them put into application. In the reality of it, we have to actually work with these people and find ways of bringing them on board and retraining and reprogramming them in addition to the work that we already do. And it was really hard and incredibly taxing. Uh, your experience really speaks to how um, like marginalized folks often have to like compartmentalize parts of themselves in order to just like survive at their jobs um, and not be able to like fully tell their stories, which um, brings me to um, this quote that I found from uh, Chimamande Ngozi Adichie, who was at a Girls Right Now award ceremony last summer. And she says, quote, if you start thinking about being likable, you're not going to tell your story honestly because you're going to be so concerned with not offending and that's going to ruin your story. And she goes on to say that it's bullshit. Um, but <laughs> <laughs> I mean, for the both of you who like won an award for being good storytellers, it's like, um, how do you, I guess, walk this line of like of knowing that your storytelling is paramount um, and sort of negotiating your, your own likability within that space? Uh, well, for me, that comes up all of the time because I work in comedy. You know, when you're doing comedy, the you're basically working under a framework where at the end of the day, you're likable, right? We laugh because we enjoy something. Even if it... Um, even if that joke sort of falls back on us and proves uh, or brings to light things that we don't like about ourselves, we like and appreciate the experience of that moment. So it's always at play. I enjoy being the dislikable woman on stage and owning that, and I find myself having to walk this fine line of making sure that owning that dislikability doesn't itself become a character a, a caricature that it that it stays an aspect of my uh, persona and performance on stage but doesn't become so um, inconsequential that it then is just cute and I think that's the trap that a lot of female comedians 
have to work around not falling into is being cute on stage, which is frustrating because when a guy is cute on stage, then of course he's adorable and we love him and he's Dimitri Martin. But if a, (laughs) if a woman is cute on stage, then that's, you become the perfect uh, cast type for every, you know, wife in every sitcom that has no real voice and is just in reaction to her husband's activities as protagonist. As a comedian, I want to be able to be on stage, uh, project my thoughts and opinions. And what that means for me is that I have to put the question of likability and dislikability immediately on the table, establish that I'm going to say what I am going to say and you're going to listen to it because I'm in charge and I have a mic. And also this is going to be funny. Yeah, I think my experience is a little bit different. I um, came into media making as a writer on the internet, which is full of trolls. Um, I used to write on a site called CP Mutiny, which was the largest South Asian American blog um, for about 10 years. We closed our site in 2012. And when I was there, I just got inundated with trolls, either because I was too outspoken as a woman, I was too political, I was too progressive, I was too Muslim. It was a largely um, non-Muslim, South Asian type of a site. And I think I was never really concerned about my likability. I was more concerned, maybe naively so, about telling the story of the perspective that I aligned myself with and that because I didn't care about my likability that meant that I got a lot of haters I got tons of haters I would get I had a cyber stalker for a while Um, I had you know hate emails hate whatever hate comments and I think that's something that I've been careful about um careful about dealing with haters, but I don't think that meant that I had to change my voice to be more likable. I think what I ended up doing was changing my voice to be more vulnerable as I went on through the years, as I got more comfortable with my voice. And I think, I think there's that, that there's a give and take that like, sure, you might not be likable, but at least you're telling truth and you're telling um, your own personal story in a real and meaningful way. And that really resonates with people. Um, uh, it might not resonate with the people that perceive that women need to be likable, but it, it resonates with with like-minded folks. All right, so we're at the end of the show where we talk about one thing we've read, one thing we're watching, and one thing we're listening to. Sarah, it's all you. Okay, a book I'm currently reading and currently loving is called Labor of Love, um, and it's a look at the economic history of dating in the United States. And so it's about how economic forces shape our dating lives. This sounds really academic, I know, but it's actually a really accessible and fun book and is looking at how people have this view right now of like, oh, dating has changed. It used to be traditional, like you go on a date and you go out to dinner and then you go see a movie and the third date, maybe you have sex. And before then, you just hold hands. <laughs> and what this book does is really shows that, that that idea of like dating used to be this way is just a moment in time and is really a myth because dating and courtship has changed dramatically over the course of the last 120 years when it came from, you know, parents setting up their kids to 
those kids being able to find and pursue their own partners out in the public sphere. And so um, check it out. The book is called Labor of Love, and it's a look at economics of dating. Also, you've watched something recently you really like? Oh, yeah. So this week, I'm choosing The Watched, and it's a new show on Netflix um, called Lady Dynamite. It's by the um, <laughs> the comedian Maria Bamford. Oh, I love her. Yeah, Maria Bamford. So talented. Maria Bamford's skill <sighs> is like putting it all out there. Mm-hmm. She is such a weirdo, mm-hmm. and she is like going all for it. And in Lady Dynamite, I've only watched a couple episodes so far. Um, so I hope it keeps being good, but she's really, uh, it's like, uh, she's playing the role of an, of a comedian who like has it all together. She's about to get her big break. And then she starts having these kind of, um, uh, mental illness episodes and like a breakdown and, um, Maria Bamford deals a lot with mental illness in her comedy and in her work. She's super vulnerable as well as, um, just super puts it all out there about her own, dealings with mental illness and working that into her comedy and into her routine. Um, so this show so far has been like a really interesting and funny and sad and weird and uh, compelling exploration of life in Los Angeles when you're having a mental breakdown. Wow, that sounds incredible because Maria Bamford has been doing comedy for decades and I don't know if she's done a show before, but I'm super, I'm so glad you brought that up because now I'm super excited to watch that because I need a new show to watch while I'm working <laughs> on because I just wrapped up House of Cards, which was so intense. But uh, now, now I know because I was like, I was, <laughs> I was at the gym the other day and I was like, uh, this, well, uh, like House of Cards ended right in the middle of my run. I was like, now what do I do with my life? <laughs> well, like I said, I'm only a couple episodes in, so it could go off the rails. I don't know, but Lady Dynamite on Netflix. Right. Okay. So our music pick is um, somebody that I wrote about for our new Music Monday features. And uh, her name is Adia Victoria. And she's a Nashville-based singer-songwriter. And she she writes this type, uh, plays and writes this type of music that's like really eerie and like, I I use the word gauzy. Mm. like a gauze because mm. I felt like kind of ghostly maybe yes and it's like um, country blues rock inspired um, the track I want to play is called Dead Eyes thanks so much for listening to Backtalk and go check out Good Muslim Bad Muslim those ladies are great and thanks to them for being on our show thank you so much it's Thanks for listening to Backtalk. This podcast is hosted by Sarah Merck and Amy Lamb from Bitch Media. The show is produced by Alex Ward. Bitch Media is a reader and listener supported feminist nonprofit. If you want to support the show and our work, please head over to bitchmedia.org and donate.